Okay, testing. What do we have here? Okay, yeah, that'll be good enough. This morning we're studying the book of Hebrews and we're still in chapter 7, which is about Jesus and Melchizedek and the Melchizedek priesthood and the eternal priesthood of our Lord and the fact that it was given to him by a divine decree and that, therefore, it's superior to the Levitical priesthood, and that Jesus is uniquely one who is both king and priest, which would not have been possible under the Old Covenant. Kings couldn't be priests. But this, under the New Covenant, Jesus is a priest not from the tribe of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. And then we looked at Abraham's relationship to Melchizedek, earlier in this chapter, and saw there that Abraham had paid tithes to Melchizedek, and then Melchizedek had blessed Abraham, and therefore Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and by implication also therefore greater than Abraham's descendants, Levi, the Levites. So that's getting us up to where we are right now, for those of you who maybe have missed the first part of chapter 7, and we are on verse 15. Hebrews 7.15. And this is clear still if another priest rise according to the likeness of Melchizedek. What's clearer? Well, that uh, there's no uh, priest that comes from the tribe of Judah and Jesus from the tribe of Judah. But we have Psalm 110 and verse 4. And actually you can think of chapter 7 as an extended sermon on Psalm 110 and verse 4. The thought of Psalm 110 verse 4 underlies the entirety of Hebrews chapter 7. And it's a very, very key passage. So why don't we start by looking at that. Psalm 110 and verse 4. As I have told you many times, Psalm 110 is the most often cited Messianic psalm in the New Testament. It's it's cited or alluded to more than any other passage in the Old Testament about Jesus. So its its importance can hardly be overemphasized. Let me start at the first verse. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth a strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power and holy array from the womb of the dawn. Thy youth are to thee as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So this is clearly messianic. Remember, Jesus stumped his critics by asking them a question about this. He he cited verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, who is my Lord in this? Who is the Lord and who is my Lord? Who is David talking about? Right, but... They didn't want to answer that. <laughs> exactly. So the, he threw that one out, out to the critics, and they didn't want to answer it. They couldn't answer it. And so the early church quoted this. This was alluded to or cited by Peter on the day of Pentecost, and this became central to the preaching of the gospel in the early church because the Jews were trying to understand, well, how can you say Jesus is the Messiah when he died? Messiah doesn't come to die. Messiah comes to, to rule. But they said he is ruling in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And they cite this to prove it. That he ascended and he says at the right hand of the Father. As he told uh, Pilate. Yeah. Yeah, he said, I came to bear witness to the truth. My kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate said, what is truth? And... So that was uh, why we have so many references to this. It's absolutely important. And that's why we need to know the Old Testament. That's why we need to know prophecy. It's absolutely important. That's conference that Jan held this weekend, which was really excellent. They were talking a lot about just various prophecies concerning Israel and the land that are, that are still valid. And one of them they talked about the most was um, Zechariah, where it says that you shall not divide this land. And that the nations are trying to force Israel to divide the land. And God says it shall, shall not be divided. And so they're, they're drawing out implications to that. 
So, interesting. Okay, so here we have Psalm 110, verse 4. Let's go to verse 16 of Hebrews 7. Who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. So, yes, uh, Keith. As a matter of fact, people do that today. Do you know the Mormons do that? The Mormons claim to be, according to the order of the Holy Order of Melchizedek Priesthood. <laughs> yeah, why don't you predict your own resurrection from the dead and then bodily ascended to heaven? Then we'll believe you. But until then, we're going to believe Jesus. Because he's the only one who proved it. Yeah, talk is cheap. You can always claim anything. Yeah, I, I've debated with Mormons about that. They come up with this holy order of the Melchizedek priesthood in their, in their talk. Okay, we have here, um, not on the basis of a law of physical requirements. So, Psalm 110, verse 4 said, forever. Forever. And this is an eternal decree. It doesn't say when it happens. It just says in Psalm 110, the Lord swore, you are a priest forever. Um, and so we assume this is an eternal decree from the, God's from before the foundation of the world, this was God's eternal purpose that Jesus would be this Melchizedek, have this Melchizedek priesthood. Now, it's not instituted until the ascension. Okay. But it's decreed from all eternity. Uh, I have a citation from William Lane, whose commentary on Hebrews is outstanding. Absolutely. Everything William Lane writes a commentary on is outstanding. A little bit technical, but fantastic nevertheless. Um, he says this, The power of life that the res- resurrection conferred upon Jesus demonstrated that his priesthood is not limited by the temporal transitory character of the old priesthood based on physical descent. It is undergirded by a power that overcame mortality and corruption and consequently is beyond the reach of mortality and Corruption. So Jesus' priesthood is forever, and it cannot be corrupted, and he's not going to die, or it's not going to cease. um, So the the resurrection proves this indestructible life. It's not based on law, it's not based on descent, but it's based on the eternal power of God and the unchangeableness of God's eternal decree. Yes. You know, I can't remember my Mormonism well enough. I it's been 25 years since I dealt with those guys, and I talked. And they, they were trying to tell me they were of the Holy Order of Melchizedek Priesthood. So I'm not sure how they established that claim, but I do know what their doctrine of Christ is. They don't deny the deity of Christ. They just say, according to the way they understand deity, they believe that Christ was a man who became a God. But they believe that God was a man who became a God. And they believe that humans can become gods. Okay? So if you talk to Mormons, their problem lies in their definition of deity. All right? Because they'll say, I remember when I was a brand new Christian and we were witnessing on the campus of Iowa State University, the Mormon missionaries were there and they were going around confusing the students, trying to claim, they would, they would have a lot of these students convinced that the Mormons are Christians. And, and they'd find these nominal Christians that grew up in churches and, they, and you know, when people are in college, they're vulnerable to ideas, okay? And they're rethinking things, you know, they're not going to just necessarily go along with their parents' faith. And so the Mormons were hammering away on all these Christian students, and they had several of them convinced the Mormons were Christians. And so then I, they called me in to, 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 to you know, intervene. Not that I was an expert. I've been saved for three months, but <laughs> I, knew the, I knew the Mormons weren't Christians. I knew that much. And they, they'd, they'd, they'd just say, these, whatever you ask them, they say, oh, yeah, do you believe in the deity of Christ? Yeah. Do you believe in the humanity of Christ? Oh, yeah. 
Do you believe that Jesus died? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yep, we're Christian. We believe what you do. And so you got to, why you got to know definitions. People can just take over a term, like they do in politics, and they, and they, and they'll say, this is, this is my term, to say, therefore I'm Orthodox, but you got to know what their definition is. And so you start pushing it and say, was Jesus always God from all eternity? Oh, no. Ah, so there's the problem. And then when you start, and then they have this whole hidden thing that you only find once you start getting into, that, that only males could become gods, and the males that, that somehow, and it's almost by works, you have to be able to achieve this uh, status by perfectly following, I can't remember what they have a term, how you have to perfectly follow it. But once you finally do, you get to have your own planet and a harem and populate your planet with all these little deities. Hey. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so you hear people say, well, you yeah, have Mormons, aren't they the ones that are believing the family? Oh, yeah, they're a real strong family. <laughs> they got a really weird family, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Well, so you got to bring these things out uh, late. No, they wouldn't claim they are now. Somehow you have to get a part of this holy order of Melchizedek priesthood to have hope. But I think there's always this process that nobody can be sure of. A guy named Robert Bowman has done a lot of apologetic work concerning Mormonism. I heard him give a speech about it one time. And he... Had uh, he has a, an approach to witnessing the Mormons, then what he what he does is he he from their own beliefs and their own writings gets them to admit that they really don't have any hope. What would it take for you to enter this paradise? Well, and then he quotes from their writings from the Book of Mormon, and what it takes is that you have to absolutely be morally perfect, and nobody is. So no, not, nobody he talks to ever thinks that they are actually going to make it. Oh yeah, uh, it's absolutely true that they are believe it works. Not, you know, although they'll, they'll throw out these terms, the po- whole point, the, their whole method is this: find nominal Christians that grew up in churches, convince them on the surface that they just have a different version of Christianity, and that it had and it's a strong family-oriented thing, and that they're there for people to help their families, get them into their thing, and then let them gradually get indoctrinated into it until they're fully into the cult. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you have a subjective experience to convince you that the Book of Mormon is from God. Yeah, that's that's what they do. Okay, so buyer beware. <laughs> Pays to know where these things. By the way, if you ever do get involved with Mormons and try to witness to them, we have in our library. I assume it's still there. It was there a long time ago. A video uh, from Anchorburg where they interviewed some of the top. Mormon prophets from Salt Lake City. These were the absolute top guy. Remember that one, Dick? And they asked them these things directly, these kind of questions. Do you believe this? And they said, oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of Mormons do not know what their own officials teach. They don't even know because the, they don't hear it in their everyday Mormonism. 
So that video shows where this stuff is coming from. And, and that they do believe this. Ed Decker, yeah. Okay, yeah, he's a former Mormon, right? Yeah, Ed Decker. Okay, well, back to the, the real Melchizedek priesthood. It says in verse 17, For it is witnessed of him, thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, that's the Psalm 110, verse 4 that we're studying. So now to verse 18. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside, literally annulment, of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. So here we do have a change in covenants. This is a setting aside of the old covenant. And this will become more clear when we get into Hebrews chapter 8. And it's important to know that. There's continuity in the Bible, but there's also changes in how God deals, deals with people. Yeah, people are always saved by grace through faith. But God has had more than one covenant. There's an old covenant and a new covenant. And it says the old is done away. So it's no longer valid to go set up a Levitical priesthood, build a temple, start doing animal sacrifices, and try to keep the law. That has been annulled according to the book of Hebrews. Yeah. Actually, what's going to happen, I was just writing about that. I'm writing an article on a means of grace, and I'm writing on communion right now. It's, oh, it's just, and we're having communion, by, by the way, today. And this study I'm doing, is, I'm excited about it. Um, it really is linked to the idea that when they did the Passover, in a sense, com- our communion is what we have instead of Passover. Okay, because it was instituted at Passover. And at Passover... At Passover if you haven't been to the biblical dinner, I would suggest that you go at least once, because I learned more from that biblical dinner about the messianic implications of the Passover. But uh, they were remembering and looking forward, and uh, they were talking about that at the conference. I think it was Dave Hunt talking about this. That if there's a command in the Old, the Old Testament and a, and a promise that Passover would be for the Jews forever. Okay. And he says that, and he was saying this, that in Israel today, even though the majority of the Jews are agnostic or liberal or unbelieving, 98% keep Passover. And that all over the world, Jews keep Passover to this day, even if they don't believe in it, and even if they don't believe in the Bible. And he says that's more evidence that the Bible's true, that God actually set the Jews forth as his people that, that are uniquely just, just showing to the world that God exists because He's, and, and they still keep Passover. But we don't. Why? Because the Lord instituted His Supper. And He, and He said, I'll never drink this fruit of the vine again with you after He offered a cup of blessing, which all the scholars all believe was the third cup. There's four cups at Passover. Alright? The third cup was the cup, the cup of blessing that he, that he offered to them and said, I won't drink it again until I do it anew in the Father's kingdom. And so he left the fourth cup in suspension for however many hundreds or thousands of years it is before he returns. Nobody knows how long. All right. And every time Christians take communion, which Christians have done ever since the institution of it, all, all versions of Christianity have some kind of communion, those Christians are supposedly, though some of them aren't doing it in faith, and means of grace are not effectual apart from faith. Right? It isn't by the work done. The Catholic doctrine says you do the work, the grace is in the means, okay, in the substance of the, of the communion, and you do it, and that's what's going to save you, or so it's going to give you saving grace. We don't believe that. We believe that faith is necessary. And that, the, that though the, God's means include communion, but the communion is a portrayal of the gospel. And so is baptism. And so every time we receive communion, every time, whether not everybody knows this, but I wish they did, 
they are saying to the Lord, I remember your death, just like the, and the Jews remembered that the reason they exist is because God brought them out of Egypt. And that's just indelibly imprinted, imprinted into the Jewish consciousness so much that unbelieving Jews keep Passover. And that's how they know who they are. God brought us out of Egypt and made us a people. And we, as Christians, remember the Lord's death. Every time we receive communion, we are saying this. I am who I am because Jesus died for my sins. That's our identity as Christians. We are who we are. It's a communal act of receiving um, the Lord's Supper. So we're who we are and what he did. Yes, Norm. When you use the word forever, like you read in the Old Testament, yeah. this, is, this is commanded forever. It's, a, it's an everlasting covenant. Right. Forever. Right. Again, many things that it says forever are not really forever. Okay. Uh, seems like you've got to take all these things in context to figure out what is forever. Okay, good question. I'll, I'll repeat it. Um, I don't know if this mic's picking up people across the room. The question was, how come it says forever so often in the Old Testament? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, right? All right, let, let me comment and then keep. Um, the context does have to t- tell you, okay? Uh, because I know the amillennialists, for instance, I'm, we're having this debate on October 15th, and it's guaranteed they'll bring that up. And they'll, they'll find one where it says forever, and it's, but it's not happening anymore. So obviously it's not really forever, so therefore the word forever never means forever. Well, that, that doesn't follow, okay? For instance, when God made this covenant with Abraham, whereby he cut the calf in two, and remember the birds and the animals, and they laid out this, I, I preached on that, they had this big bloody, gutty mouse laying there. And then the two parties, when they do that kind of a covenant, they walk between the pieces, and when they get to the other side, they say, may God do to me what happened to this animal if I don't keep my word. Now, how's that for graphic <laughs> being serious? Well, here's how we know that one's forever, uh, Norm, because Abraham didn't go through the pieces. And I mean, God did by himself, and after he went through the pieces, so it couldn't depend on Abraham failing sometime in the future because he didn't even go through the pieces. It was unilateral. And, and, and guess what God promised Abraham and his descendants that day? The land. Now, it turns out that the promises forever, they several times were driven off the land. But God never forgot the promise. And he brings them back. All right? Uh, Keith. Yeah, that, that is that part of it. I think that's true for this covenant. Now, the, the, what the amillennialists do is they say that's everything. In other words, everything that was ever promised to Israel now is fulfilled in the church, and Israel no longer exists. Nor does Israel have any promises. We remember, and then we look forward. Now, oh, I was, I was in the middle of talking about that. The, okay, so every time we, take, we receive communion, and then we do today, we are remembering the Lord's death. That's our identity as Christians. That's how we know who we are, just like the Jews know they're Jews by the Passover. We're remembering the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death. We remember and we proclaim. Now, the fourth cup that was never received at that Last Supper, that should have been, normally would have been, has been waiting for us for the marriage supper of the Lamb. He says, I won't drink it with you until I do. He promised that he would. And so when, when, he, when he comes for us, and we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, 
there's going to be this messianic banquet. Now, just how this all works out, we won't know until it does. But there's going to be a messianic banquet that will include the patriarchs. Because remember he says the harlots and publicans are going to sit and dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. Okay? So it's going to, I've heard some dispensationalists say that it's, it's not for the Old Testament saints, but that, that's foolish. It's foolish to be saying that. That just gives fodder to the evil and else to beat us with. Um, the, the, because Jesus said that, it, that we're going to dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, so obviously they're going to participate. And we are saying to the Lord, even so, come quickly. Literally, when we receive communion, we are proclaiming our faith and we're saying to the Lord that we believe His promise. And that is our great hope and, and to soon be dining with Him at this ultimate messianic banquet. Now, to us, maybe we don't catch the, the, the glory of that because we grew up in a, a society where banquets are like every day. I mean, they didn't have the wealth they didn't have the modern agriculture and ability to make all this produce. They couldn't have big feasts every day. They ate just ordinary, you know, survival day by day by day. The feast was saved for the most important occasions, like the wedding feast or the Passover. When they feasted, this was the most exciting, wonderful thing that happened all year long. And it wasn't something you could just go do every time you felt like it. It just wasn't possible. And so to them, a feast with their, and then the fellowship aspect of it was so important to the Jews, that a feast with their brothers and sisters in the faith was the greatest thing. So that's why um, the hope portrayed to us is this great messianic feast where not only are we going to be together, but we're going to be together with the patriarchs in the Old Testament. David's going to be there. Abraham's going to be there. Moses is going to be there. Uh, the Paul and Peter and John are going to be there. Uh, Luther is going to be there. <laughs> whoever whoever was redeemed throughout, and the, the ones who are caught up to be with him in the air, all of the redeemed are going to be partaking of the greatest ultimate messianic banquet. Well, that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? <laughs> all right. So all that's in. Uh, there's more about communion than you can imagine once you start studying the, all the implications of it. Exactly. And so uh, the way I understand that is some of these things can be abrogated for a while because of man's rebellion, but God continues to hold up his end of the deal. And, and some of it is fulfilled in Christ. I'm not denying that, and I'm not, I don't want to be extreme dispensationalist. Um, for example, the Davidic kingdom. It was promised, it said, and what did it say in uh, Jeremiah? If you can annul my covenant with the day and night so that the sun doesn't rise and set, then you're going to know that. Oh, do you have that one? Go ahead and read it. Exactly. And how is that true? Messiah is the ultimate descendant of David, who is indeed reigning on the throne. So we'd have to say that was fulfilled in Christ. So uh, there are some extreme dispensationalists that actually think that during the millennium, David's going to be ruling, not Jesus. Yeah, I, I was on the radio with the guy who was saying that, and I disagreed with him. Okay.
It's how we draw near to God. It's our hope of drawing near to God, which is what we're going here in verse 19. But let's finish verse 18. We were talking about the setting aside of a former commandment. Now, what exactly was set aside here, do you think? The ceremonial law. Yeah, the Levitical, the whole Levitical sacrifice system was set aside. But there was one, it was really pointing towards the greater. Yeah. That's true. And the, the sacrifice now was the one that Jesus did once for all. The priesthood now is the eternal, forever Melchizedek priesthood. And the way we draw near to God is through the blood of Jesus, not through the blood of bulls and goats. That's what it says, yes. In Jeremiah. Yeah, Jeremiah predicts that that's what's going to happen. And one of the new things that's going to happen, it says you won't have to tell your neighbor, know the Lord, for you will all know the Lord. Now, how can they say that? Everybody doesn't know the Lord. Well, everybody that's a part of the covenant does. Because you can't be a part of the covenant without knowing the Lord. You are, I don't care what your lineage is and where you grew up and if they baptized you as a baby or whatever, you are not in this covenant without knowing the Lord. Do you, under, do you understand that? Yes. Yeah, and there's no high priest but Jesus, and there's no priesthood but the priesthood of all believers. So. Well, as a matter of fact, that temptation never goes away. There's something in fallen man that wants a holy man over them. That's why cults work. That's why you see these people give all their money to these preachers. People, we want a man. Remember what they said? (laughs) I want a man. I want a man. And, and and, And God said, they're rejecting me. I'll rule over them. No, we don't want God. We can't see him. Give us a man. And as long as that is in the hearts of humans, people are going to be able to take advantage of it and start religions, get people's money, lord it over them, set themselves up as some uh, anybody that can come along and say, I have the secret of getting to God that you don't know, and you need to come to me so I can tell you what God has to say because i got this hotline to heaven. That's just another one of these false priesthoods that somebody's setting up that puts somebody between you and God besides the man Christ Jesus. Yes? Yeah, it's, uh, in fact, it says here that it's annulled. That's what we're talking about, verse 18. And yeah, it's more and better. That's, that's literally the word better is used several times in the book of Hebrews. Greater, better, better priesthood, better promises, better leader, better house. It's a better house than Moses's. He used that analogy. Here, uh, William Lane says, um, <coughs> 
it is in the light of the subsequent eschatological fulfillment that this previous transitory ordinance based on physical descent had been abrogated. With the promulgation of Psalm 110 verse 4, God announced his intention to set aside the whole Levitical system because it had proven to be ineffective in achieving its purpose. Its weakness, asthenes in the Greek, and here is not in, this, in the law or its purpose, but in the people upon whom it depends for its accomplishment. Um, its uselessness, another word used, derives from the fact that the law regulated the approach to God in a cultic sense and was unable to cleanse, it was able to cleanse only externally. Now, the, by the way, when you read theology, the word cultic's not bad. When they, they'll talk about the Old Testament cultists. What they meant was a group of people with a certain religious practice, or whatever it may be. Yeah, like a, yeah. So they, that word is, a, is neutral in, in, theolo- in theology. It isn't a pejorative like it is in our common uh, dialect. Yeah, it would be a cultist would be a religious sect with certain practices that make them distinct. And so you'd have a Canaanite cultist, a, a Philistine, and a Hebrew one. Somewhat like our word religion, but not exactly. Okay. So, uh, but the the point here, the weakness wasn't that God had given them a bad covenant, but He gave them a temporary one to look forward to the one sacrifice for sins. And so the the, the weakness was in the Levi, the priesthood, and in the people. Yeah. Yeah. The Galatians argues that it, it, the the problem with it was the was the sin nature, not what God gave them. All right. So, uh, we need something better because of our own sin nature. Okay, um, Paulette, you want to look up a verse? Yes. Acts 13.39 and Sam, Romans 8.3. By the way, the setting aside is a legal term. The Greek word is a legal term for an annulment. So, it means it's no longer legally applicable anymore. Yeah, yeah, Acts 13.9. What? I wrote it. 39. I, I, I wrote it down right. I said it wrong. And we thought we needed a little more than that. That just didn't, didn't do it. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yes. Yeah, by by him, Jesus, everyone who believes is justified by all things, which you could not be by the law of Moses. The law of Moses will not justify you, but Jesus does. Okay, and then Romans 8 and verse 3. But what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, for God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Yep, what the law could not do, being weak as it was through the flesh, God did in sending his own son. Amen? So, so only through Christ will we find what we need. Let's look at verse 19. I love the phrase at the end of this verse. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. That phrase struck me when I was on the radio with Brian Flynn, and we were talking about this contemplative prayer, and people were calling in. Wondering, you know, why are you against this? There's some nice Christian people that do this. And one of the things that came to my mind on the radio was that when you ask the people that do it, why do you do this? Why do you do this uh, contemplative prayer? Contemplative prayer, by the way, is uh, basically a technique for achieving an altered state of consciousness so you can hear God's voice. I just wrote an article about it. Okay. And what they say is, oh, we want to get closer to God. And so that made me think, get closer to God. What is, that reminded me of the book of Hebrews where it tells us how to draw near to God. And the argument in Hebrews is that you can't get any nearer to God than you do through the personal work of Christ, which is already a finished work. And you don't get closer to God by being in an altered state of consciousness. You get closer to God by trusting Jesus Christ fully. That's how you, it says here, whereby we draw near to God. <laughs> and so they're, they're coming up with a man-made technique to make you feel like you get closer to God when 
according to the Hebrews, is there is no such thing. There is no secret that somebody learned about how to get closer to God. That's why I'm writing this article on means of grace. All of these alternatives that have arisen in church history, whether it's Catholic mysticism, Protestant pietism, or any of the other traditions, and they go back hundreds and hundreds of years. I'm not acting like this is just some new thing. People have been mystics as long as there's been people. But they are not God's means of grace. They're always the secret of the deeper life. If you ever see a book that says Secrets of the Deeper Life, run. It's, it's, I tell you right now, it's false. God doesn't hide His access to Him, uh, you know, to be discovered by some spiritual pioneers that are more holy than everybody else. He reveals access to Him clearly in the Scripture, and you draw near to God through the person of Jesus Christ, and there's no secret. It's all revealed in Scripture. Okay, so there, there is no secret. Yeah. They're getting further from God. Right. And they may be very sincerely desiring this, but it's a deception from Satan. And yes, we're all a little bit discontented because you know what? This world's screwed up. Amen. You know what else? We're screwed up. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's not hard to convince you you need something out. Ryan and John. They left. Yeah. The acid test is how you respond to the gospel. Look at the John 6. He, he multiplies the food for them, right? He feeds them. He walks on water, okay? And so I think they, by now I'll kind of get the idea this guy's, you know, the right one, okay? And, when, and, then, and then when he starts preaching the gospel to them, they get mad and they all leave. He says, you, you just want food. You're not coming to me because you saw a miracle. Now, what did he mean there? Well, the miracle should have showed them he's who he is and they should listen to him. But they weren't believing in him as in his person at work. They just believed he could give them bread without them having to go plant wheat. That's the danger here. That's why we always need to gospel. Yeah. They still need to be converted. John. <laughs> Everything gets further away instead of closer. <laughs> it's pushing it further from the gospel, further from sight, yes. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the things about means of grace. By the way, the term means of grace is rarely used by anybody but uh, Lutheran and Reformed theologians. Uh, Catholics had their idea of the sacraments. But I think it's a, uh, I studied it for two or three years before I decided to use it. Remember Ryan and I used to talk about why do they use this term? I, I, I could not figure out why they used the term because it so, sounded too much like just doing going through the work. But then, when I realized the significance of it, what it's all about, I realized it's a very good reason for this term. And I was talking to Keith on the phone one day when I got a, I got a revelation from God. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, all of a sudden, we were talking about this issue, though, about all these practices that everybody is trying to do to get a revelation or try to get a, a vision or all this stuff. And it came to my mind that methods are not neutral. All right? 
And the divination in the Old Testament was just more means that people had to try to get in contact with deity or to get information from God or the gods or whatever they believed. And that God has for our own protection limited the means by which we come to Him. Now, He's not limiting what He can do. All right, And I'm going to include that in my article. He is limiting what He gives us as valid means to come to Him. It has to be through the Gospel. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, and no one, no one comes to the Father but by me. So obviously that's a limitation. And our access to Him is through the things He has told us to do. What are we supposed to do when we come to church? Did God just let us do whatever we want? Or did He tell us what we're supposed to do when we gather together? Means of grace is the means that God's promised that's how and where He'll meet us. And Luther and Calvin both at the Reformation, they had to decide this because they were rejecting the seven sacraments all right, um, of the Catholic Church. And they were rejecting uh, this oper- operato, whatever it is, this by the work done. They were rejecting that because they said it had to be by faith. So what they both came up with, and I quote uh, Calvin's Institutes on this, is that where is there a valid church? They said a valid church exists wherever the word is purely taught and the sacraments, they still use the term, but they only meant baptism and the Lord's Supper. That was all. Are properly practiced according to the Lord's institution. That's the quote. All right. And so if you go to a church and the word is not purely taught, then it's not really a church according to what Christ intended. And if we aren't offering baptism in the Lord's Supper in the way that Christ intended, then we're, we're, we're keeping, away, keeping people from what the Lord instituted, what He wanted to have happen. Now, that's how what God has given us as means. Now, it doesn't mean God can't do something else, but that's in His hands, not ours. All right? That doesn't mean God can't take um, Philip and transport him out to the Ethiopian... Ethiopian yeah. yeah. Or, or Jesus can't confront Paul on the world of Damascus and knock him off his horse and show him a blinding light and say, I am Christ whom you're persecuting. God can do a lot of things, but those things are in His hand. But He hasn't given us a magic button to, to force Him to do anything like that. All right? He's given us the beast. Preach the gospel. Preach the word. Come in faith. Baptize. Go, go into all the world baptizing them. All right? And which we're going to do today. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. And so as we receive communion, we are availing ourselves of what means God promised that he said, this is what you should do. I will meet you if you do it in faith. Amen. That's, that's what I'm excited about. So I think that uh, Calvin and Luther had something going for Keith and... <laughs> Yeah, right. They set up this thing, whether it's charismatic or evangelical, they all have, for instance, Rick Warren has this thing called a SHAPE program, and it's based on Jungian psychology, and there's Myers-Briggs indicator, which is a, comes from Jung. The Myers-Briggs was, came out of Jungian psychology, which is a depth psychology, which, you know, I don't want to get into all that. But what they do is they run people through this thing to figure out what their gifts are. And then it's just like corporations doing to hire employees. And then they plug all these church members in based on this whole crazy thing. Uh, so we've got this wiener factory to crank out Christians by these man-made methods. And uh, part of the reason I'm writing this article is I'm going to suggest that the purpose-driven life is not a means of grace. And, and if that's what your church is doing... And I'm going to get even bolder and write another article after this and suggest that these big, mega, mono, big, huge corporations that are churning out evangelical Christians like they're running them through the weenie factory, they are not even churches by any biblical definition. And I came to that understanding because I saw people getting kicked out of those churches for wanting the gospel to be preached. Um, a true church that is the flock of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, little flock, that he talks about in Matthew 18, 
The discipline in a church that is Christ's flock is when people are disciplined for sin and, or heresy. And even at that, they're treated kindly and compassionately. And you go to him first in private, and you try to save your brother. And if he's a wandering sheep, you try to bring him back into the fold. And ultimately, if all else fails, you, you regard him as a heathen, but you still would preach the gospel to him. Right? Well, the tr- these people are calling me and emailing me, and they're getting kicked out of the church. Why? For not supporting the corporate vision. Okay? This is our corporate vision. This is our marketing strategy. And that is the same reason people are fired from, from these total quality management corporations. They know that in order to make a successful organization, you have to have everybody unified, everybody agree to the plan, and all the parts pulling in the same direction. So they've taken that whole schema, which works great, and they applied it to the church. And so that, that what these pastors, I heard one say this, well, okay, we understand that there's such things as correcting false doctrine and standing against sin and doing all this, but that's not what we do. We don't do that because we don't believe that our, this is our church. We do this. And he told, then he gave their, whatever their mission statement, which is some nice Christian thing. It's not evil. And everybody that's here, whether they're on the staff or they're a member or they're attending, all has agreed to that's what we're doing and that's what we're about. And anybody that wants something else, they have to go. I, when I heard that, I, that gave me the idea for this article. That is not a church by Jesus' standards. That's a, a corporation that's made up of an aggregation of religious consumers. Amen. And they should repent. Well, that's where repentance is coming. A belief system, it's an unbelief system, like the Jews, and they get it there like they have a seal, but it's a. He okay. believe it not is condemned. It's a whole system that, you know, now we talk about drinking and all this kind of thing. No, it's a whole belief system that they have that. Like you said, the opposite of what you said. Well, coming to Christ by faith. <laughs> right. It's a belief system. Why don't they repent of it? There's where repentance comes in. Oh, I would agree. Well, anyhow, that's why I'm going to suggest that we go back to this very simple definition of the church offered by the Reformation. The Word is purely taught, Amen. and the means of grace are given to the people. It may be small, it may not be great, it may not be wild and wonderful, but God said, I will meet you, and you will draw near to God. And it'll bring you from cradle to grave, ultimately to the <laughs> to the Lord. Yes, Mary. Yeah, the gifts gifts of the Spirit, according to First Corinthians twelve, are things that God gives to individual members for the benefit in the the of the entire body. They're gifts to, to serve, whereby we serve one another. And God is sovereign in His of, dispensing of the gifts. It isn't something that you got to go take a Myers-Briggs indicator uh, to figure out what it is. God just does it. Uh, I mean, I didn't do anything. God called me to be a teacher, and so I teach. That's what gift He gave me. Um, I don't deserve any credit for it other than I guess I show up. That's a good thing. But, yeah. The old adage, all the work in the world gets done by the ones that show up. is still true. So, uh, well, we better talk about showing up. We better show up for fellowship time and churches at 1030. Thank you for an invigorating Sunday school. <laughs>